Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 33. You probably have heard of the best-selling Python book, Automate the Boring Stuff with Python. But what are the next steps after starting to dabble in Python basics? Maybe you've completed some tutorials, created a few scripts, and automated repetitive tasks in your life. Well, this week on the show, we have author Al Swigert to talk about his new book, Beyond the Basic Stuff with Python, Best Practices for Writing Clean Code. We discuss several topics covered in his new book, including using the command line, setting environment variables, formatting code, naming, and starting with version control. We talk about learning Python by creating games and highlight a couple of Python myths. I also ask Al about his earlier books and about his idea of creating a curriculum around conference talks. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Al, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. I wanted to have you come on because I, I saw the announcement about the new book coming out and that it's in this early release. And I was able to get in on the, uh, the early, early access deal here and I, I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, for, for a while now, people have asked me because I'm mostly known for writing automate the boring stuff with Python, Yeah, uh, which has been a really knockout success that I was really surprised by. And so people ask like, Oh, Hey, what book should I read next? And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, kind of tricky because that whole intermediate area is is really hard to to cater to a lot of people you know it's described as the tutorial desert or tutorial hell or or something where you know the language syntax and you know enough python that you can write some code but you feel like you're not really writing real programs like the way that professional software developers do and all the materials out there seem to either be Hello World tutorials, or there are some advanced niche machine learning topic or something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and you really can't follow along. And and for the longest time, I I didn't really even know what a sequel to this book would look like. In fact, I looking at the the Git repo I set up for the book project, I actually started this about three years ago. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> Quite a while. And so, you know, I've, I've been working on, on lots of other things in the interim, but uh, the book as it is right now is, is very different from the book that I had originally conceived for it. But it's, it's all finally done and it's, it's coming out in November. And it's, uh, yeah. So was Automate the Boring Stuff the first book you've ever written? Uh, no, I, I started writing programming books in about 2009. Okay. My, my girlfriend at the time was a nanny for this 10-year-old who wanted to learn how to, how to program. And so he asked her to ask me like, to find some resources or, th- or something. I thought, okay, yeah, that should be easy. We have the internet. We can, <laughs> right. we can dig something up. And, you know, of course, the problem with that is you, we have lots of information, but it's not, very, it's not really curated very well at all. Um, so I thought, okay, I remember 
the programs and games written in the programming language basic that were written in like magazine articles like byte magazine or yeah. things like that <laughs> where you would just copy it yeah totally type it in <laughs> yeah and so like all these really simple programs uh, really i only had two books that covered programming at all uh, one of them was a, a book that uh, a friend of mine found at the school library and it had like the the source code for a bunch of small little games like that and then the other one was the reference manual that came with the 386 computer that my parents bought would have like a q basic book or something with it or what did it have oh it was this was even like before q basic okay (laughs) all right i was i was still like using line numbers um as part of it and so the the programming book i got at the school library was great It it just had those guess the number type games in it and and i didn't even really read the the content of the book so much as just copy the code and play around with it a little bit. And then the reference manual, I had no idea. I couldn't understand any of it. It just went <laughs> into lots of t- technical detail. And so I thought, well, it was really great just having the source code for for these small games. And then that's how I just kind of learned from the example. And I thought like, well, you know, this is 2009 and I had been programming in Python for a few years. And I thought, I'll just make like the Python version of a lot of those programs. And that became Invent Your Own Computer Games with Python. Okay, cool. So you started in the game area. That's great. Yeah. Mahmoud uh, Hashemi in the Bay Area had a great talk where one of his talk slides was a Venn diagram of how people get into programming. <laughs> and one of one circle is making video games and the other circle is getting away from Microsoft Excel. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that one slide sort of encapsulates my entire book writing career strategy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, people like making video games, and they also like automating boring stuff. So at, at the time, this was just a, a tutorial that I threw up on the web, and I put it into quote-unquote chapters and and then somebody uh, said, "Hey, you should you should just like self-publish it." And so, you know, I, I did that. I created a PDF uh, through a convoluted series of of hacks, but uh, and then it became, you know, a poorly edited, self published book that was on Amazon. But once it was on Amazon, everybody thought like, "Oh, you're an actual author right now." You can... <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yeah, sure, that's that's a fiction that I'll let you have about me. <laughs> I'll encourage that. Uh, and I still do that to this day. <laughs> um, but uh, but people seem to like it. So I wrote a second book about Pygame and then a third book about just um, like small little uh, cryptography projects. And and then the, for the fourth book, uh, I, I approached New Starch Press about it. And they said, yeah, okay, they'll, they'll publish that. And I remember there is a, a section in my diary where I, I flipped back to where while I was writing this book, which took, I think, about like a year and a half in my spare time because I was still working as a software engineer. And I remember writing down, like, I have no idea if this is going to be useful at all for people. But uh, yeah, it it turned out to be really successful. Um, before I, I had left my job as a software engineer, so I had been with the, the company for a while and so I thought like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to switch jobs, but I'll just take like a year off and finish writing this book. And that was 
seven years ago, I wow. think. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. Automate the Boring Stuff uh, really took off. And so I, I started creating a, a Udemy course and then on and some YouTube videos as well. And somehow I've I've managed to make a career out of this. Nice. So the Udemy stuff is a nice little income stream for you at times? Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised because mostly I created it as sort of just like the video version of the book. Uh, it doesn't even cover as much content as the book. It, it was mostly created as a way to promote the book, but it sort of also became like a nice income stream as well on its own. I think I mentioned it in the email to you that my first Python job, which is you know only about three years ago, I went in and had done some real basic kind of like learning some fundamentals and they wanted to give me like a, a test and the computer I was at didn't have a internet connection, which was fine. But then they <laughs> like dropped your book on the desk next to me. They're like, here, you can use this as a reference. <laughs> so, so I got, so I got introduced to it. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't have a ton of time, so I, I wasn't really diving too deep into it, but I, I really, I picked up a copy. I was like, okay, this is great. And then I, I got the revised version on one of the no starch, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, humble bundle yeah humble yeah. bundles yeah they put a lot of stuff in there usually so yeah 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 no search is a is a really great publisher it's it's not really a large company i think they have probably about a couple dozen employees uh in their san francisco office and i was also living in san francisco at the time so it was really nice just to be able to like meet editors for for a quick lunch meeting or something like that yeah are you in seattle now is that right yeah yeah i moved to seattle uh about a year ago and it's it's been quite an interesting year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could say. <laughs> yeah, in- interesting is my favorite euphemism to use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's the word of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was going through the book, you know, kind of going through different chapters of it, I haven't read all of it, but it, to me it feels very much like a, an advice book. Is Was that your intent? Yeah, I I very much wanted it to not be a computer science book. Or, or even just like a regular programming book, because a lot of a lot of times with most programming books, they focus on on syntax and a lot of abstract things. And I, I recall, I think you know, 2012 sort of was there was a big push of everyone needs to learn how to code, and programming is the wave of the future. Oh yeah, right. I was at Apple for a while. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, if you if you just go through you know old news articles and things like this. This seems to happen about every 10 years. There was, uh, like, I think a Time magazine or a New York Times article from 1984 that was also saying, everybody needs to learn how to code because you need to prepare for the future. Right. (laughs) And even though, you know, almost nobody had heard of the internet back in the 80s. um, So I, I started thinking about that and I thought, yeah, but do we actually all need to learn how to program? And a lot of people interpret that as everybody needs to become a software engineer, and that's clearly not true. Right. But at the same time, you know, ev- everybody's using computers these days. Like, you know, 20 years ago, if you were, you know, talking with your friends in chat rooms every day, you were like this huge nerd. But today, that's that's just the average social media user. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and yeah, and so it, you know, I, I started thinking. Well, okay, what's the minimum amount of programming that you would need to know to do useful things? And what are these useful things? And I started getting uh, ideas of like, well, it'd be nice if you could update spreadsheets or you know rename a bunch of files uh, in a certain way. And 
send out notifications or compile reports. And, and I was also just talking to various friends and, and people. There was a, one guy I met at a meetup who said that he taught himself enough Python programming to automate this task where every morning he would have to go to like the Yahoo Financial webpage and then copy and paste a bunch of things into a spreadsheet and then email his, his boss this. And, you know, it would take him like an hour and a half to compile all of this. And uh, he finally uh, wrote a script to do this, you know, in a few seconds. And he just didn't tell his boss that he wrote this. He just took an extra long lunch every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's just a lot of things that that, you know, because we use computers every day, there's there's a lot of things that like an average person who doesn't need to become a software engineer, but if they if they know like a little bit of coding, they can uh in like save themselves a, a lot of time. Yeah, totally. That was the most common job I, I you know, things I was kind of doing inside of the bank that I worked at. I was doing SQL and a bunch of other things before and building stuff in Access and all these other kinds of tools. And then this new job I got they basically brought me on and the title was automation engineer <laughs> and, and I didn't really have as many tools as I wanted because of the way that, you know, it was very, you know, sort of secure environment and so forth. And so we couldn't right. create Linux, you know, virtual machines and I was going to use Docker. I was going to use all those kinds of things. So I ended up really kind of creating small tools and Python was the best tool for me to kind of, rapidly develop these things and share with others and just solve all these problems and hopefully, you know, speed everybody's lives up. And so, um, definitely, <laughs> yeah, definitely fit the mode of what you, you're kind of covering in your book. Yeah. I mean, Python, Python's popularity has, has really exploded. It's technically about a 30 year old language, but especially in the, in the last 10 years, it's really taken off and it has its origins where, uh, Guido Van Rossum, uh, copied it from the ABC language, which was developed as sort of like a learning language more than uh, one that would be professionally used in software development. But ABC was designed to be very easy to learn and readable and easy to use. And it turns out that's that's a thing that everybody likes. You know, amateurs and experienced software developers like tools that are easy to use. And I first got started with Python a sort of in the mid-2000s, I think like around 2005 or so. So, you know, fairly early on. And <laughs> I still feel kind of bad about this, but um, before then, I, I felt like I learned new programming languages all the time. Sort of started in, in high school, but then especially in college, where, you know, I went on from QBasic to Visual Basic and C and Perl and PHP and but then once I learned Python, I sort of stopped learning new programming languages <laughs> because Python was great at uh, everything yeah. I, I needed to use it for. Well, <laughs> like home, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually sort of easier to list the things that Python hasn't really come to dominate in the software space. I think like embedded computing, like embedded software, but there's still, there's MicroPython for that. Yeah, and CircuitPython. Yeah, those are great. yeah. And uh, I guess gaming uh, is another area where Python isn't really used all that much. But at the same time, we still have like Pygame and there are a few commercial games made with Python. Yeah. I was thinking about your books on games. You did the Advent book. I feel like you've kind of adapted that multiple times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> technically, um, uh, No Starch Press produced a new edition of it, which is 
technically the fourth edition. Okay. But that's just because I every time I came out with a new update for that book, when I was self-publishing it, I would just call it like a new edition because I would get better at, especially at editing books. I think like the from the second to third edition, it actually cut about like 80 pages um, of stuff that really didn't even need to be in the book or just extraneous detail and, and things like that. Yeah. Were you changing the types of games that were in it? Not even, not even that. It was, I think it was all the same projects, but I would also just sort of make that simplify the source code and simplify the explanations. So, you know, I would actually end up with fewer pages than what I had started out with, which is always great because I remember learning this like fairly early on, uh, you know, every time I, I find like some programming book that's like 600 pages or something like that, I, I realized like even fairly early on about half the stuff would be things that I already know. So I would just sort of start skimming the book and then realize I, at the end of the chapter that I haven't actually been paying attention to anything. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. So, and automate the boring stuff is, is also getting to, I think like 500 pages. I know the second edition had about a hundred pages added on to it. And I'm, I'm just very keenly aware that for a lot of people, programming is seen as this really intimidating thing, especially because all of these books are, you know, 600 or a thousand pages uh, long. And, and it seems like such a, a huge investment and people are worried about like, Oh, am I even smart enough to program in and all this stuff that once you actually start programming, you realize like, actually, nobody knows how to write software. We're all constantly making bugs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you find that to be a goal then to, to, to make it less intimidating by maybe keeping the book a little smaller? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, I think with, um, so the, the follow-up book, uh, that's coming out soon beyond the basic stuff with Python, I think it comes out to be about 325 pages, which is sort of what I what I want to aim for for a, for a textbook. Or it's it's not even really a textbook uh, per se, but just like a, a technical book that that you would sit down and and sort of read through, and not just like a reference book that you have on your shelf that you only consult every once in a while, but something that you actually like sort of read cover to cover. Well, I I started to do that. I started kind of diving into it and. I have this real mixed past of different languages and different books. And, you know, as for a little while, I was like going to learn Swift because I was interested in the mobile thing and, you know, I kind of bounced around and kind of landed on Python and really kind of fell in love with, with it. And, you know, I ended up working with real Python, which I've covered multiple <laughs> times on the, on the show. But um, as I, there are things that are missing. Like I don't, I went to school, you know, college in the eighties and I dropped mm -hmm. out. I just, I, got into music and was in a band and did all that stuff and toured and, and just kind of left all that behind. And I kind of came back to computers and all that stuff much later. And so my CS background is real kind of limited. And so I've found it really been, you know, a great way to learn is to teach, you know, kind of that combination. Oh yeah, for sure. And I kind of get that from a lot of the, your writings, the, the way that, you're kind of explaining things and it feels like you're you found a lot of these stumbling blocks and in, in the beyond the basic stuff you're kind of trying to share that advice and say hey okay these are the things that <laughs> i always call them like uh sharp edges you know that you have to sort of sand off you know and try to help people not get cut yeah. on them <laughs> as they're working through things yeah yeah i i try to compile sort of 
a, a list of the random things that you just learn with experience that everybody who is an experienced software engineer seems to know, but nobody really remembers when they learned it. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, there's already a lot of great books out there if you want to learn more about the Python language itself. So I wanted to touch, touch on some of that stuff, but also just go into general, like, software engineering best practices. So there are parts where I, I talk about uh, code style and code formatting and sort of, you know, like, here are the conventions and uh, this is why we do things this way. And But then at the same time, I, I like to drop in that uh, at the end, these are all just my opinions on things that I've learned in my career and what other people say. And they're not necessarily the one true way to write software. It's, in fact, that, that whole idea is, is very nebulous. And most of the time, getting into arguments about it is not really as productive as you think it is. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I've been that way about technology like my whole life. I've been around all these different people that really want to turn everything into like some form of technological religious battle. And yeah, I'm so <laughs> agnostic yeah, about all I, of it. <laughs> like I, I have my, what I like to use and what's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe it's just because I've, I've just been surrounded by the Python community uh, so much and, and the Python community is, is really great. But uh, I, I think I've noticed that's sort of tended to die down in like the last 10 years because Certainly, like in the in the two thousands, you know, I had lots of of friends in computer science who were like, "You use Windows? That's for losers!" And yeah, and <laughs> yeah, just all the, you know, a lot of like, here's what the real programmers use. And the the webcomic XKCD has a whole joke about that, where it's like, well, actually, real programmers use butterflies to <laughs> flap their wings in such a way that it alters uh, the magnetic particles on a hard disk and that's how you should really write code <laughs> right yeah totally <laughs> yeah no i've yeah i've been part of that whole religious thing for you know macs and pcs and yeah <laughs> you know and, and and it could be like a video game platform or like you know even the music stuff like people were like so anti-digital stuff yeah and and i think it's just as you get older you realize none of that stuff is important at all everything is sort of terrible um <laughs> <laughs> you should work on just you know creating things shipping yeah <laughs> getting and, things done you know you know and even you know right now i still think programming is fun and really cool but at the same time i'm more focused on i want to create software that people actually use and if i could create software that people actually use by wiggling my ears instead of typing on a computer that's what i would be practicing every day the actual the actual process or the languages of the platforms that you use uh i i don't have, i don't think that they have any sort of inherent betterness um right exactly <laughs> it's you know especially you know after several years working in in the tech industry you realize you've seen how the sausage is made and any illusions you have about uh, the sacredness of something has long evaporated. One of the things I liked you covered was um area about environment variables and, and setting them up. And it's an area that, that, again, I don't have a lot of background with, you know, bash and terminal scripts and stuff like that. But it's something you need to know to really get past some of those, you know, like you said, beyond the basics, right? Yeah. And it's nice because you cover all the languages, or right. I guess all the platforms. You, yeah. You cover... Um, yeah, Windows, Mac, Linux. Yeah, so that's that's actually the first part of the book. Um, the first chapter is is getting help and how to ask questions because 
there is there is a whole etiquette behind how to properly ask programming questions. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of a lot of times, you know, we learn we learn programming in school and. Or, or we learn things in school and we're used to this environment where you have a person that you can ask questions to. But on the internet, it's very much uh, like in a synchronous form of communication. You post something, then you wait a few hours for somebody else to reply or you email somebody and you have to wait hours for a reply. And so it helps to have all the information up front. I, I still get you know emails from readers saying like, my program doesn't work. And that's the entire email. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I, I finally wrote up a blog post that I send them a link to. It's like, well, here's how you can, how you can ask for help. Um, and so that's, that's sort of like a foundational skill that, you know, again, people don't necessarily have. You don't instinctively really know, know that sort of thing. And, and then the other thing that um, people don't seem to really know or like formally sit down and learn, it's just one of those things that you pick up over time is the command line and and even like why we use the command line. And the short answer to that is the command line is a great way to unambiguously run uh, certain programs and perform certain actions, you know, as opposed to, you know, dragging files, you have to open a window and then find a file somewhere and, and click. And you can't really sort of easily record like all the places that you click and then run them in some sort of automated script. But with commands, you always have the same text running the same commands, and so that lends itself to automation better. I bet it lends itself to writing into a book better too than having yeah. to like have like thirty graphical <laughs> screenshots of how to do this thing. Yeah, exactly. And but again, like the command line is is sort of intimidating because you know it's it's just a blank window with a blinking cursor, and it doesn't really offer you any help as to what you're supposed to do unlike a graphical user interface where it has icons that you can click on and sort of play around with. And so a lot of people just put off learning the command line for a while. And then other things like the file system or or environment variables. And this is uh, something I, I noticed with, well, I think a lot of Python instructors and programming instructors have, have picked up on is uh, whenever you have like a learn to program workshop, like for four hours on a Saturday or something like that, a lot of times there will be a pre-workshop workshop that is focused on just getting Python installed on your computer and running. And that's that always takes up, you know, a couple hours because, you know, people will have like different permissions on their systems or they'll be on Windows or Mac or Linux. And they're mostly the same, but they have some slight differences. And so I, I tried to just quickly cover, like, here's all the basic command line commands you don't have to become an expert in all of this, but here's just sort of like, oh, what these things mean. And like, oh, you can have an asterisk uh, that represents like a wildcard to mean all files in this current folder. And here's what current working directory means. And all these other like random little uh, bits of knowledge that, uh, again, you pick up over time. But it's it's kind of can be hard to find a place where the, all of that is co- collected and gathered into one spot. Yeah, I liked it. I, I uh, learned a couple commands inside of there that I hadn't been using, that I hadn't been practicing. You know, there's other ones that I know that it, that I'm more familiar with, but I didn't know the the idea of just printing out the entire environment, which was like that's great, and the history, and these are should be common commands that I should know, but I just right, you know, yeah. it's one of those things where if you've gathered all your information in all these random places, <laughs> there's going to be gaps. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's also really easy to just go really you know deep into the command line and you have like all these convoluted commands and and that you know you pipe the input of the output of one program to the input of another and then it does this and this and this and you have this 
a giant pile of mostly punctuation marks and and other commands <laughs> right <laughs> and and it does some really you know sophisticated thing and that's really cool but that's also incredibly intimidating for beginners who are, are just like they they want the program to do the thing and that's all they're concerned with and they don't really you know they don't need to know all of this this technical detail i like that you had a chapter about about names <laughs> yes <laughs> about naming things <laughs> Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? So so there's that old joke, um, like the two hardest problems in computer science are uh, cache invalidation and naming things and off by one errors. Um, but like the, the part where it's like naming things is really hard. And uh, I so I, I stream on Twitch kind of irregularly, but I'll, I'll just be like speaking out loud while I'm writing some program that does something. And I realize like, yeah, it actually is hard to come up with a good name for your variables and functions and things like that. And, you know, everybody, you know, left to your own devices, you'll come up with some way that you, you write, you know, you come up with names for all these things. But, you know, there's, there's, you know, drawbacks to some ways, like, you know, coming going back to sort of like the 1980s and before with like C, you have functions called string compare, except they're written as strcmp, so like strcomp oh, yeah. or something like that. And and people would just sort of learn, like grow up learning that style of, of function names and things like that and would also sort of just tend to drop the vowels from all of their from all of their function names and things like that. And we realized, actually, we don't really need to do that anymore. It's it's not like we're programming in assembly in, in the 1950s or something like that. And every single byte that we use matters. Like we can go ahead and write out the full word. And right. we now know that readability is really important when you're writing software and, and coming up with descriptive names. And so I have a I have like a sort of a, a long like an entire chapter full of just advice that I've picked up. And again, I, I have this like low level anxiety well low level anxiety all the time about everything but about this book <laughs> sure <laughs> where you know i've i've i'll say i'll give some piece of advice and i can already see the the one star reviews coming in of people saying actually this is blah 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 and so i also try to try to put in a healthy dose of you know but again this is this is what works i'm sure 10 years from now we're going to be doing something completely different um, because we've discovered like new and better ways to do things. Naming by emojis is the way everybody's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about that actually. Um, well, that, that's the other thing too about a lot of these names. Like a lot of times, people use variable names that are just single letters, and especially like in my computer science classes in college, this this was done all the time. With you know, like here's the merge sort algorithm, but all the all the variables are just single letters or they're like Greek letters yeah. and it's all in pseudocode. And I think a, a lot of that just comes from the fact that uh, in academia, especially computer science grew out of mathematics and math notation is all just individual letters or great <laughs> Greek letters. Yeah, yeah. Small Greek letters and, you know, weird symbols. And the thing is like, they did that because when you're writing math out, when you're doing math on a chalkboard or, or on paper, you don't want to spend a lot of time. Yeah, it's it's a lot slower than typing keys on a keyboard. And so you come up with all these different symbols and things like that. And, you know, you don't have Greek letters or even emoji on your keyboard. So it's it's really confusing to see that you know, style of presenting 
you know, algorithms and, and things like that. But that's not actually, that's completely different from real code that you can run under a debugger and, and step through it line by line and see what's happening. And so I, th- I have this real like, oh, I, I don't like pseudocode, but it's this thing that we continue to do because that's the way it's always been done. I'm in the same boat when I've yeah. taken sev- several real Python articles or written by people that are probably much more in a CS background than myself. Yeah. And everything is foo, bar, baz, and all these kinds of like weird things like that. Or the variable names are just, like you said, individual letters or letter and number. I don't know. It's like my eyes just end up crossing and I go out of focus <laughs> and it means nothing to me. So um, I quickly converted it to, and I see you do kind of a similar thing, the the, the Pythonic style of Monty Python names. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, it's like spam bacon eggs from the Monty Python spam sketch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and lobster. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, that, it's fun in that way. It's kind of silly, but at least it's more of an object than foo, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's still a bad habit that I have, even when writing these books, and I, I need to go back and probably in a future edition, I'll try to get rid of it entirely. There's there's a chapter in, in Beyond the Basic Stuff with Python where I just cover jargon. And uh, so these these variable names are called metasyntactic variables. Yeah. Things like foo and bar and spam. And they're just sort of stand-ins for like generic variable name. It doesn't matter what the name is. It's We're just showing like some bit of syntax but at the same time like a lot of people do get turned off by that it it doesn't you know it seems to completely lack context and it's completely abstract and that can be really hard to follow but it's it's sort of i never really appreciated how hard it is to come up with good examples that don't seem entirely contrived and and because of that, I, I end up just falling back on like, oh, we just have a, a list and a variable spam. And because I'm, I want to talk about lists uh, more than <laughs> variable names, and it doesn't matter what the name is. Um, right. Sort of like if you're teaching a business class and you just talk about widgets and things like that, it was like, well, you know, the, the actual details in the real world do matter. And so I, I go and, yeah, so the, the chapter on names sort of talks about how it, you know, it really is important to sit down and come up with with names uh, if you're writing software that you intend on actually uh, updating and and using continuously. Right. So it'll make sense to you in the, in the future. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a huge part of it, right? The whole documentation and naming is like you know a good percentage of documentation. Yeah, I mean that's it's really important when writing software in a on a team that everybody can understand the code that everybody else is working on, but also you know. A lot. Every I think every programmer has had the experience where they're looking through some code and they're like, "Who wrote all of this stuff? It makes no sense." And you find out the answer is, "Well, you like three weeks ago." (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Kind of talking on the the theme of working with teams. I see you have a chapter uh, about code formatting and and using Black. Yes. Yeah, Black is a tool that uh, will go through it. It doesn't change the behavior of your code. It's it's a code formatter. It just, you know, adds spaces or removes spaces or makes your code look cleaner without changing uh, what it does. And and it's a it's a really great tool for formatting Python code. But I think the 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 most useful thing about it is that it prevents you from getting into arguments 
that are kind of pointless with your team members about like spacing or or changing or like making little check-ins uh, to the repo with that are just style changes and then having a coworker change them back because they prefer it the other way. There are things about the way that black formats code that I don't quite like, but on the other hand, I can live with them. So it's just so much easier to say, hey, this is something that software can do. We we don't have to sit down and, and do all these tedious little edits. We don't have to have arguments. Let's just do what Black does to our code. And that's that's what we'll just do. It's so much easier to make that decision than to make the thousands of little decisions, you know, forever and ever about uh, how you should format code or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, um, we use it at RealPython for a variety of reasons too. Just, you know, again, avoiding any kind of arguments on that stuff is, is uh, still, I don't know, it's a form of efficiency. You yeah, know, you think yeah. About and, and, you know, it's been said before that programmer time is so much more expensive than than CPU time. Right. Kind of going back to some of the ideas on naming and kind of explaining concepts, why do you enjoy teaching Python using games? It's it's probably because that's sort of how I got into it. I remember, uh, so like my parents uh, got my sister and I the like 8-bit Nintendo when we were pretty young. And so I was like really into video games as a kid and really into Lego building blocks. And so, you know, when I, when I first found uh, my friend introduced me to this book that taught programming in basic, I thought like, whoa, that's really cool. Even though the, the, the games that I made weren't nearly as good as anything that I played like on the Nintendo and they were all sort of text-based and most of them didn't work. And I had like a lot of projects that were just sort of half finished and never did anything. And, and you know, I, I sort of don't like talking about the fact that I was one of those kids that early on learned programming because it sort of reinforces that idea that you have to have started really young and and had tons of experience because, you know, I'll point out that everything that I, I wrote this down in, in Automate the Boring Stuff, like everything that I learned between you know, like the third grade when I first was introduced and graduating high school, you could probably learn that in about a dozen weekends. Yeah. It really like wasn't because, you know, we didn't have Wikipedia or YouTube tutorials or or like, or even just as all the books that we have out right now. It was sort of, you just found the O'Reilly book on a certain topic and that was uh, pretty much the the definitive guide that you that you used for whatever programming language. And we didn't even have a like Stack Overflow. Or if you had questions, you just had to sort of figure it out on your own. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so you know, it's it's so much easier to learn programming these days. But yeah, so video games were a really sort of you know the gateway drug into programming, and I think it still is a lot of a lot of kids today, and just you know a lot of people in general would really like to you know write something that's not just calculating interest rates or or something like that, but you can come up with a, a little program or something like that. And in fact, so I have a, another Python book project in the works right now that uh, hopefully should be out in April of 2021, where it's sort of old school in that it's like the Byte Magazine uh, code listings. It's um, just like a listing of about 80 Python projects most of these are games. Some of them are small simulations or, th- or things like that. They're all text-based, okay. uh, which is really nice because then the, the output of the program is the same text medium as the source code of the program. So you can actually sort of 
look at the output text of the program and then look at the print function call that produced it. And you can sort of get this cause and effect idea yeah. of it. But but it also just makes it just a lot simpler to create programs. And so, you know, it's like guess the number programs or like a blackjack card game or really simple things. All of these programs are generally under about 250 lines of code or, or even just, you know, like 50 or 100 lines of code. And it's just like a neat little project that, you know, you wouldn't pay money for uh, on the app store for it. But it'll be, you know, something that you can create yourself and that's mildly amusing for 10 minutes. But it only took you like 20 minutes to type it out. So that's great. And it's it's a nice way to see how all these programming concepts like loops and variables and functions combine together into actual programs that do a little fun thing. So so yeah, games are are a great way to to get into programming and i'm really glad that computing has video games as as this thing because i don't think like there's i don't think there's many other places where this really applies like if if you want to get into car engines there's just so much investment that you have to to do and that's huge investment yeah (laughs) yeah and you don't necessarily end up with like a cool car at the end of 45 minutes of fiddling around with some tools and things like that. Yeah. That's what's kind of cool about the electronics thing too now. Like they're, yeah. they're coming down in price and the programmability and um, it's a very exciting time, <laughs> I think, you know? Yeah. I, I, I never really got into hardware uh, mostly because of that, that reason. So like my parents, you know, got like a, a desktop computer uh, in the nineties and that wasn't a very common thing at the time. But at the same time, like you we were not uh, an affluent family. Uh, you know, like I would go to my friend's house and they would have like the Super Nintendo and a Sega Genesis. Um, <laughs> right. And I thought like, oh, wow, they are loaded. Um, <laughs> but but at the same time, I was, you know, having that, re- like having a personal computer in the home and I could just play around with it at the same time was such a huge advantage uh, for me. And, you know, my parents had no idea that I would become like a, a software engineer or, or anything like that. It was just sort of a resource that they made available. And and that's kind of what I want to do as well with with like programming books, which is why I released them under Creative Commons licenses. So it's free to just download these books off the internet. Because, you know, even, even if you can get like a, a used copy of automate the boring stuff or beyond the basic stuff for 20 bucks or something, $20 is still a, a barrier that uh, keeps a lot of people out. And so I'm trying to, it, it seems really absurd, you know, now in, in the 21st century when, you know, I, I pay about like 15 bucks a month for web hosting, but I can send out tens of thousands of copies of my book to, to people it's just so incredibly cheap to distribute information. And so I kind of want to get rid of as many of these barriers as possible. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's about a topic we touched on briefly in this week's episode. It's one of those areas where a good foundation goes a long way towards your programming future. It's titled Unicode and Python, Working with Character Encodings. The course is based on a real Python article by Brad Solomon and is presented by previous podcast guest Christopher Trudeau. Python's Unicode support is strong and robust, but it takes some time to master. There are many ways of encoding text and binary data, and in this course, you'll learn a bit of the history of encodings. 
You'll practice with multiple examples and see how smooth working with text and binary data in Python can be. By the end of the course, you'll know what an encoding is, what ASCII is, how binary displays as octal and hex values, how UTF-8 encodes a code point, how to combine code points into a single glyph, and which built-in functions can help you. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn the intricacies of Unicode, UTF-8, ASCII, and how to use them when programming in Python. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. It also has a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Shifting topic a little bit in the beyond the basic stuff, you have a chapter about Git. Why did you include a chapter about that in, in this book? Oh, yeah, because, um, yeah, so Git's a version control tool, which for folks who don't know, it's it's sort of basically uh, if you could just save, like imagine if every time you saved a file, you could go back to previous saves. You just didn't have like the one copy of a file that you were saving. And so uh, version control tools are especially useful in, in software development because then you can see all the previous versions of the code that you've been writing. So if you've added something in that you don't want to have, you can then roll back changes. And Git is is one of those things that all professional software engineers use, but isn't something that amateurs or, or hobbyists or people who are just getting into programming are aware of. And, and it's also something that can be really intimidating and, and technically challenging. But the basic ideas are fairly simple. And and I only have one chapter on on Git. It's I basically only only talk about like here's how you can you know save these snapshots and then roll back to previous snapshots of your code and that's it. I don't go into like branching and merging and all of these other advanced topics, mostly because I just wanted to have a non-intimidating introduction to this concept, and then people can then learn learn more on their own. Yeah, yeah. I, with this book, I tried to sort of figure out what are all the things that that you don't really you aren't really aware of as a beginner even exist so things like code formatting tools and or even just the concept of code style uh is one of them and then git was another and then i have another chapter on just jargon and technical terms so it's sort of like what's the difference between an interpreter and a compiler or yeah you know or a module and a framework and an engine and an sdk and uh, and just sort of like common misconceptions as well. Yeah, no, that's super common stuff. I try to, if I can, uh, you know, break down any of the acronyms and and those kinds of things in the podcast because I feel like I have no idea, you know, right. who's listening yeah. and what their background is. And I was definitely listening to other podcasts, and yeah, everything would just sail over my head, and I'd be like, I don't know what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, you're just sort of like nodding your head. Um, yeah, yeah I'll absorb it <laughs> at some point. <laughs> I mean, that's something I, I used to teach at like this uh, kids' Saturday morning programming class, and you know, one of those things I realized is if you ask somebody, and you know, a child or an adult, like, oh, do you understand? They're just going to say yes, um, no matter what, because you know they don't want to disappoint you, and so there's that weird social pressure there. Yeah, it's, it's there's a in fact, especially with with technology, I feel like a lot of people, even professionals, can use ter- uh, technical terms uh, inconsistently or, or interchangeably when they're really not the same thing. I remember one of the things back when I was writing my first programming book, 
And writing a book and teaching something is definitely the best way to learn it because uh, you have to sort of stop after every sentence oh, yeah. <laughs> you say or write and say, wait, is that actually true? And then spend a, a few minutes Googling uh, to find out. But yeah, you have to stand behind it. It's, it's kind of this weird yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, like every sentence is, is a possible uh, nitpicker review on, right. <laughs> on Amazon yeah. or something like that. But uh, yeah, when I was writing my, my the first programming book, Invent Your Own Computer Games with Python, I realized that I actually didn't know what the difference was between an expression and a statement. I was just sort of like, oh, those that's just code. It's instructions. They mean the same thing. And then I realized, oh, actually, no, expressions are the instructions that can sort of evaluate to a, down to a single value. So like, you know, two plus two evaluates to four. And then statements are sort of every other expression. So like, the for statement or while uh, loop statement or if else and and those things. I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I had been, you know, I was about like uh, several years out of college at this point and employed as a professional software engineer and I didn't know this basic fact. <gasps> yeah, I would get into occasionally, you know, via comments and stuff like that, the interchangeability of the term parameter and argument. And yes. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, technically they're very similar and you'll hear them interchanged. But, you know, if you want to get super, super technical, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Right. And it always, it still throws me to this day because I think the technical term keyword argument it should actually be called keyword parameter, but nobody, act, I can't find the documentation <laughs> that actually says it's like, well, it's not an argument, it's a parameter, but but everybody is just sort of used to saying keyword argument. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quarks. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's another example of like um, variable names where we've just dropped the vowels out of it. Uh, K-W-A-R-G-S. Yeah, totally. Just quargs. Yeah, no, that threw me off when I, I kept seeing them and it was like so jargony. I would see them in all, all these programs and I'm like... <laughs> and then it, we, I talked to uh, Michael Kennedy about it a little bit and it seems to be s sort of moving in a different direction somewhat that they're not as common uh, as always having them. You know, the star arg, star, star right, yeah. quarks thing. It's becoming a little less common in some of the packages I'm seeing. You know, it, it you know kind of depends, but, you know, definitely there's places where it's needed, but it's nice to have things that are named and defined and, you know. Yeah. yeah. So beyond the basic stuff with Python is the first book that I've written where I actually talk about object-oriented programming uh, because for the most part, you know, OOP is is a feature that you don't really need, just kind of like all the args and quargs stuff. Like you can write code that way, but a lot of times you don't need it. And, and like automate the boring stuff doesn't go into classes and object-oriented programming at all because it's this extra layer of complexity that, uh, you know, sometimes you can you can make use of it, but for the most part, you actually don't really need it necessarily. And it's it's really easy to over-engineer any code that you start writing, especially when you learn about like cool new features, and so you sort of yeah. you have it, so you want to use it, <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> totally, yeah. I noticed that that you know, it's kind of near the end of the 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 book, third yeah. part of it. You're diving into it. Was that something you were excited to include in the book? Excited and also kind of dreaded. <laughs> um, okay, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's the last three chapters of the book. Uh, the first of those chapters just sort of covers classes. And and I try to cover like, oh, this is why we 
we actually use classes. It's a way of like bundling code and and data into these units called uh, objects that you create from classes. And especially because a lot of the object-oriented tutorials that I've seen would always have things like, oh, this is our car class. Uh, some like really contrived example. Yeah. Uh, this is our car class and it has a, a, a wheel member variable and a honk horn method. And... But, you know, because it was just a really contrived example, like the honk horn method doesn't actually do anything. It's not connected to an actual physical horn in the real world. It just, you know, has like print honk or something like that. And so the, I, this took a long time to sort of think through, but I, I came up with the metaphor of, of like uh, forms that we fill out, either forms on the web or like paper forms at like a doctor's office or, or something like that. Where, yeah, so classes are sort of like the blank form template that you fill in with a bunch of informations about an object or about a certain thing. So like, you know, a doctor's office, the form represents a patient. Right. And and so I say like, yeah, and then the filled out forms are sort of the objects that are created. They're actual instances of actual, you know, uh, doctor's patients or something like that. And then also I try to say, you know, there's, you don't have to literally translate real world objects into uh, classes and objects in your code it's just uh, how you use that in your particular software so like a car class i say would be very different between like a racing video game or a used car website like an application for that or or like a traffic simulator for for designing out roads or city planning like that and so you know there there is no like canonical car class or, or like animal class. That's another common uh, metaphor right, that's right. used. And I think a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. like things like animal or car are used because that it lends themselves to explaining inheritance, which is what the second of the three OOP chapters covers. And I kind of say like upfront, you really don't need to use inheritance. It's actually kind of a bad idea that we found. It tends to just like make things overcomplicated and, uh, Luciano Romalo, who's the author of Fluent Python, wrote in his book that, you know, programmers really tend to to love creating these these hierarchies and taxonomies of like, oh, this class is a, is a subclass of this other class, and and you know, we're creating these giant elaborate categories, and we think we're that we're adding organization, but we're really just adding bureaucracy <laughs> to, to all of our code. Yeah, and then you know, like six months later, we look at this and we realize like this is so complicated. Why do we have like these submodules in other submodules and modules and things. It's like, well, it made sense at the time. We had some like grand vision for everything. But again, uh, you know, after years of experience, I, I sort of realized that any code I write today, like half of it will either have been changed or deleted or just plain forgotten about like two or three years later, not even that long. And And so you need to write code to be maintainable and readable, but also at the same time, you know, it's a uh, sort of like that that poem about Ozymandias. You know, you you have this like this uh the great works ye mighty thought about like all the software that you're creating, but really it turns out it's it's just going to be forgotten about or changed or or just outright deleted uh pretty soon afterwards. Yeah, not being so precious about everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the uh, the third chapter, you know, I I didn't really have that much time. I didn't want to like devote so much of the book 
because I, I also <laughs> I sat down and finally really understood multiple inheritance, and then took a much longer time to figure out how to explain multiple inheritance and how that works for for that chapter on inheritance, and then. I added like another warning of like, okay, you really shouldn't use inheritance, but you really, really shouldn't use multiple inheritance. <laughs> um, but if you encounter it, you you need to know it well, like how it actually works. And it's one of those things where you can get pretty far with just a little bit of knowledge and not really understanding how it works. But if you start encountering weird problems and issues, that's when you actually need to understand how it works. But the the third chapter just goes into uh, Python properties and overloading operators, and uh, that can be a bit that can be a bit more useful when you're when you're writing larger programs and you want to add you want to have the objects of the classes you write be able to interact with like you know the plus operator or um, or you can pass them to the uh, the length function and have them return something useful like that. And it turns out it's actually like Python makes it really straightforward with those dunder methods. Yeah, the double underscore stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was thinking of a couple that were really cool that are like um, the the comparison ones that I had learned about. You know, yeah, I don't know about six months ago. Like that, you can actually create your own like equal and not equal. You know, a double uh, dunder right. eq. Yeah, and that's pretty. That's pretty neat. You know, <laughs> that you can kind of override that stuff. Yeah, so. and and I I don't think you really think about this when you're first learning how to program, but all of these operators are basically just shorthand for function for what it would otherwise be function calls. Like you can just have two plus three. And, you know, if you didn't have the plus operator, you'd probably be calling like an add function and then passing it two arguments, two and three, and then getting a return value. But, you know, plus is such an is such a common uh, operation that where we have this shortcut where we use punctuation marks and, and symbols like the plus sign or the asterisk for multiplication. But we can also use the plus sign for concatenating two strings together into uh, one string because that's a really common thing that we do. And it's certainly easy to take to go overboard with this. I think like Perl is a good example of a language that tries to maximize the use of every possible combination of punctuation mark to have meaning. <laughs> and then and then you look at this and it's sort of like looks like you sort of randomly mashed the keyboard while holding down the shift key. <laughs> um, yeah. That's kind of the whole uh, regular expressions kind of yeah coming out of pearl somewhat too yeah you know? <laughs> yeah regular expressions are, are one of those things where it's sort of right on the boundary of like it's very terse and so it's easy to do uh, a lot of function a lot of sophisticated functionality in a short amount of code but uh it's it's easy to really abuse that and go really far off the deep end with that as well but also you know knowing regular expressions is a useful thing and there it is actually pretty good that we have this like shorthand notation for uh for text pattern matching that that regular expressions do. Yeah, so is that kind of balance like you're talking about of of readability and and you know, reusability and yeah. So I, I definitely I've done a few things with that. I was working in a like a marketing department, so I was dealing with like addresses and names and it's like, well, this is the tool for that, really. <laughs> yeah. And that's I, that's probably like one of the ways uh one of the reasons that uh, automate the boring stuff really took off is there's so many tasks that we do on a computer where um you know if it's if it's a really common popular one there's there's probably commercial software written to do this and you know departments and organizations will usually 
fit their workflow to the tool that they have. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, a lot of a lot of companies are sort of tied to the way that Microsoft Outlook does things, which isn't necessarily the way that you would want to do things, but everyone's using Outlook, so you have to sort of use the tools that you have. But with something like programming, you can uh, create your own custom tools. There's There's a lot of tasks that are particular to your personal workflow or your organization's workflow that, you know, it's it's very personal. And so there isn't going to be commercial software to automate things. It's still such a small task that it doesn't make financial sense to hire a software consultant to create something for you. But, you know, if you know just a little bit of programming, you could write a small script to to automate part of that and, and just make your life easier. Yeah, absolutely. These little kind of asides, think of them as these little myth sections. Um, why did you include those? So going back to what we were talking about earlier about how a lot of times we we sort of do things in software because that's the way they've always been done. I remember like picking up a lot of things that people sort of learn and then they kind of just repeat because that's what everybody says. So like one thing that that really sort of does get under my skin more than I I like to admit is when people say, "Oh, well Python is slow." I've heard that Python is slow and, 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 you know, there it's, you know, there is some truth to that, but then there's, it's also irrelevant. You know, it's, it's a truth that's misleading and irrelevant uh, for most cases, you know, and and I like to point out that people will always say like, oh, well, C and C++ are fast because they're like close to the metal. But, you know, originally C and C++ were high level languages because, the low-level languages were just writing your own assembly, um, and and for the most part, you know, I like to point out that you know the the slowest part of of any software is probably going to be like the human user because right. computers can you know Python code can do things in nanoseconds, whereas humans will take like four seconds to just click the mouse on a button or something like that. It's like that is literally four billion nanoseconds. That's where the bottleneck is. But a lot of times people are, really want to focus on like algorithms and writing fast code as opposed to something like user interface design, which, which doesn't seem as you know, uh, technically cool or something like that. And so you know, there's, like lots of, there's lots of things in programming that are sort of like myths that, have, that were relevant at one point but really no longer are. And so one of these uh, that I touch on is like, global variables are bad. And that is true. Like you certainly don't want to use uh, over rely on on global variables because it's sort of the nice thing about functions is that you can isolate your code. You have like the the arguments that are the input to the function and then the return value, which is the output from the function. And if there's a problem there, then you know that the problem is somewhere in that one function as opposed to anywhere in the thousands of lines of code for the program that you're writing. And and with global variables, you know, if there's a problem with a global variable, the problem could be anywhere in that program that that touches on those global variables. And so that's where the whole like, oh, global variables are bad, don't use global variables. But at the same time, well, you know, it's okay to use them sometimes. You shouldn't just blindly say, you know, point to a global variable and say, we need to get rid of this because global variables are bad. And so there's, you know, a bunch of myths like this where they require more context I think like another one that I talk about in the book is is like oh functions should do just one and only one thing and like functions should never be longer than like 30 lines of code or 20 lines of code or or some arbitrary number like that 
And, you know, while that is true, you don't want to have like your entire program in one function, say, you know, it's easy to go too far in the opposite direction, where now you have, you know, a thousand functions that are all really small and tiny, and individually, they're easy to understand. But now you have these thousand functions all calling each other. And so the relationship between them has now become much more complicated uh, than the program that you had before. Got a big flow chart to go through. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so there's just like a lot of these uh, sort of like code myths. And and I had to be like very careful when I was writing this section. Yeah. Because, you know, some people (laughs) might say like, well, actually, that's how I write programs. And what's wrong with that? And so again, I have to say like, haha, this this is just my opinion and in my own experience <laughs> yeah. and from what I hear other people talking about as well. I can already see like the the blog post reactions, <laughs> the of, hot like, takes, <laughs> Al Swigert's code myths, myths. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's such as the such as the nature of the world. Like you know things that I, I write down. I'm probably gonna you know I look back at automate the boring stuff. You know, which I first wrote in what 2015, I think, is when it was published, and there, you know there are still things that I was like, oh, I, I really want to change. The, well, put that into the third edition. <laughs> um, you know, like next chance I get is like I would need to change that. I have no idea why this book is popular. Oh God, people think that this is the right way to do things. Um, the you know those sort of problems, but yeah, you know, it's, it's still like having just being aware of of the rules will help you out because then you'll have a better understanding of when you can break these rules or when these rules don't apply. Yeah, totally. So I think that's that's what I'm trying to convey to uh to people who have already learned the syntax of a programming language like Python, but um they don't necessarily know like how things are usually done in in professional software organ- organizations. That's cool. I feel like that that kind of is like an overarching theme for the whole book, right? Yeah. Yeah, I you know the 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 gotchas, the oddities, the you know, kind of like you know, it's very advice based throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and especially you know because the second half of automate the boring stuff just covers all these third party modules for doing things like updating Excel spreadsheets or or reading PDF files and things like that. And the problem with that is like those modules can get out of date. Yeah. Or just, you know, newer versions come out and then uh, people start complaining that like, oh, this book is like out of date or something like that. Even though you can, you can always like the old versions, you can still run them and it's fine. Like uh, uh, Python 3.9 has has just come out. And, but, you know, that doesn't mean, mean that every organization needs to instantly update to Python 3.9. Although you should update to Python 3. Everyone should do that <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah. But yeah, so with Beyond the Basics stuff with Python, I wanted to try to get something that was a little bit more timeless so it would stay more relevant longer than than like a an entire book. Because, you know, it takes, you know, a year or longer to to create these books. So you want to sort of get as much out of them as possible. Uh, I hear that's that's a big problem with from people who have written books on like say Django uh, or something like that. Like a new version comes out every year. <laughs> so you have like this limited window of, of when a specific edition of your book is is relevant and then you have to like update it and it's a lot of continuous work. Yeah, they've been moving fast, you know, going from what 1.11 to 2 to now 3 and yeah, it's been <laughs> been interesting to watch. I uh, yeah, I've bought some some 
Django books from William Vincent. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And he's been kind of trying to update them as he goes, you know, his versions of them. Yeah. Um, so I can re-download like an updated version. But yeah, it's when I was, it's definitely uh, got to be challenging for him. Yeah, or um, Audrey and Danny's uh, Two Scoops of Django is is another one. Yeah, and yeah. I've heard from them that, like, they also have, you know, this is a big problem for them of, like, keeping the the book up to date. But at the same time, like, I'm so glad that that all of these folks do yeah. this work because, you know, the, the Django tutorial online is really great and you have Stack Overflow and other things like that. But there is, you know, I still think that books still do have a place in in the tech industry, even though we have things like, YouTube tutorials and Stack Overflow, because a book is like a cohesive unit of knowledge. Like you won't, you don't have that like that anxiety of like, oh, I'm just going to be randomly googling things for five hours, and I'm not even sure if I have the correct information or anything like that. Whereas with a book, it's really nice because you can just sort of like read through things, and it's like there there is like an over an overall vision behind like why all of this particular information is compiled together. Um, yeah. But then again, I'm a book author. So of course I would say that <laughs> well, <laughs> everybody I mean... should buy three copies of my book. You'll read it faster that way. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes down to it, you know, you talked about the time frame involved in planning and planning and writing it. And then you have an editor and in like you, this case, you're, you're releasing a early copy in potentially getting feedback and, so, you know, it's kind of a different different animal. So I, I definitely agree that, you know, books have their place. Um, yeah. So I have these uh, weekly questions that I like to ask everybody. Okay, yeah, go for it. And the first one is kind of a question I kind of have been trying to uh, throw back and forth between different people. You know, I kept getting kind of the same answer for a while. So I kind of retired it, but I'm going to try to bring it back here. So what is something you thought you understood in Python? But it turned out you were wrong about it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I remember you sent you sent you forward me like a list of these questions, and the answer I'm going to give to this is actually I think the answer to a lot of these questions. Um, there's a talk by a PyCon talk by Ned Batchelder, okay, called "Facts and Myths About Python Names and Variables." He he mentions that you know when you there's like a gotcha with mutable objects like lists and dictionaries, where if you say you assign a list to spam and then you say eggs equals spam and then you change the list in spam, you actually end up changing the the eggs list as well because technically it's the same list object. It's just that the spam and eggs variables both refer to it. So when you change one, you end up seemingly changing the other. And then this goes into like mutable and immutable objects and, and a whole bunch of other things. But Ned's talk is really great. Uh, facts and myths about Python names. I think it's from like PyCon 2016, maybe, but it's it's easy to find online. Okay, cool. I'll make sure to have that link. But he he mentions that actually with Python assignment, when you're saying, you know, spam equals something, uh, you're never actually copying the value ever. You're only copying the reference to it. And I think this comes back to sort of like early on, I was like learning C and, and things like that. And there are languages like Java and C that have a difference between primitive data types like integers and booleans and strings and object data types, you know, something like date time or something like that. But uh, really in Python, everything is an object. And this was the the topic of a PyCascades talk that I gave called uh, The Amazing Mutable Unmutable, Immutable Tuple. And it was something that I realized like, oh, you know, you can go a long time without 
actually knowing about this. And you can write perfectly valid code that runs bug-free. But just learning this one fact that uh, everything in, in Python is an object and that assignment, like all variables, only contain references to these objects. They don't actually sort of store it, uh, store the object. They're not like pointing to actual bytes or something. It's it, They have this like abstraction layer. It, it was something that I realized like, oh, so many things now make sense that I didn't know before. And it's really impressive how long I could go without knowing <laughs> this low-level detail, which I think is, says a lot about the ease of, of Python. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so, so this one talk just was so eye-opening and also kind of embarrassing that I had been, I, you know, because at this point I had written multiple Python books and I didn't know this this fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, and it really cons, comes uh, drives home the point that uh, programming languages, I guess like like languages in, in general, are, are just social conventions. Like these are just human-created conventions. It's not like some... Well, I, I guess, you know, there's also the, the whole philosophical debate is like, are mathematics invented or discovered? But for programming languages, it is definitely invented. Like in Python, the integer one and the string one are different values, but uh, the integer one and the floating point number uh, 1.0 are considered the same value. And that was a decision that the programming language designers came up with. It could be different, like in JavaScript, those are you, you know you can compare those with the equality operator and they're come and it comes out as like oh yeah those are the same value and so you know languages are programming languages are things that are human created and so you know there's there is no like one true way although you can certainly argue um, that the language that you like is is the best objective language <laughs> possible yeah totally what is something you're excited about in the world of Python? It could be like a book or an event or a project. Well, there's this book coming out next month called Beyond the Basic Stuff with Python. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> so a serious answer to that is, uh, you know, we talked about this earlier, uh, how Python, you know, is is relevant to so many domains like data science and web applications and sysadmin and things like that. But it's not uh, so much in like gaming or embedded or, or mobile. But the Beware project is... I think like the the main thing that's sort of seeking to address this, it's a way that you can then write Python programs that can then run on Windows, Mac, and Linux, but also on Android and iPhone as well. You know, for like the last few years, I've been telling myself I need to make time to like get involved with the Beware project and, and help out with that because it's it'd be so fantastic to have, uh, to be able to write Python code and then create Android applications and, and mobile applications. Yeah, it's a sort of like the next land that that Python should conquer, um, in my opinion. So it's and they they actually are making like steady progress. It's it's hard because they don't have like a major corporation backing them. Sort of like Python, it's it's really a community developed uh, thing. You know, once once they can start getting that off the ground, that would be really fantastic. I posted some stuff about that on Twitter, and Russell reached out to me, mm -hmm. and ended up having him on the show to talk about Beware. And we talked about, like you were mentioning, the whole thing with Android, um, which they they were able to get some funding to to get the Android programming up but it's yeah it's definitely one of those things like you know he talked about it quite a bit about the struggle you know of trying to get funding to to keep going he's like i really don't want to have a day job i'd rather just do this thing right and which makes sense and 
Yeah, I think it'd be kind of cool to take some of the book, the games and things that you're creating and put them, you know, put them into, you know, even kind of a simplified way uh, into those projects. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russell Keith McGee is is pretty much one of the core reasons why Beware uh, continues to exist. And and you have to have people who are, who are just going above and beyond. Because, you know, I've, I've long realized that the major challenges in tech are not the technical challenges by far. It's, it's just like getting a lot of people to agree on things and dividing up tasks and, and finding just, you know, organizing people, which I, I guess is pretty much true about everything in our society. Um, I was thinking about one of the things you mentioned earlier. Um, you said that there's some games that have been programmed in, in Python. I was hoping to maybe get Piper on from Pursuit Pi Bear. Oh, yeah. Um, and that project, I know that she worked with uh, Russell on some stuff and then did a talk recently and I missed it because I was, yeah, whatever, it's been life <laughs> the last several months. But she did a Pi Gotham talk that, and so I was like intrigued to see what that game was like. Uh, but did you have other games that you were thinking of that? So I know uh, I saw this just randomly on Reddit. Um, I think it's called like Code Mallow or, or something like that. It's like a four player, um, sort of fighting game uh that's that seems like somewhat casual but uh it's written in pi game and okay and it actually is one of the more impressive pi game uh games that i've seen and and i think it's it's also commercially available as well but uh there's there's other games i think there's like a, a strategic world war ii game called unity of command that's written in python yeah and like a few others i i wrote a blog post uh about this several years back pi game seems to be the main framework that that a lot of these games are written in yeah and unfortunately i think with with games this is one time the global interpreter lock the gill uh gets maligned a lot uh because it means that python programs can't truly be taking advantage of of multiple cores multi-core cpus with and and multi-threaded um even though you still can create multiple threads it's just that the threads can only run one at a time right but for games especially like you know, we tend not to think about this, but games are really one of the things where they're really CPU and, and calculation heavy oh, yeah. because you have to do all of these graphics and then you just to draw the screen and then you just throw all of that away and redo all the calculations again to draw the screen again, uh, like 60 times a second. <laughs> and uh, so that's something where you really need to have like multiple multi-threading to, to run all these calculations but also have like you can't really necessarily rely on automated memory management because you can't just have garbage collecting happening at random points that would slow down the the frame rate of, of a game and and so python i think hasn't really taken off in gaming for for that reason you know that's that's an area where like python is slow is somewhat of a valid uh criticism to have uh when it comes to like making video games but at the same time you know not every video game has to be some triple a blockbuster hundred million dollar production right uh you can still make a lot of like really fun games with simple graphics and you know i think things like minecraft or or like stardew valley uh have really shown that like yeah or strategy games and stuff like that yeah totally yeah yeah you can make these these games that don't rely on intense 3d graphics uh but that they're still engaging and fun and so i think you know Py python and pi game can have a real edge uh in in that area the last one is uh what do you want to learn next oh man i'm <laughs> uh obviously you can't see this but i'm now staring at the whiteboard 
that has dozens of post-it notes and random scrawlings written on it. Man, I would like to learn C Sharp and Unity because I have some like 3D, like little uh, 3D game projects that I'd like to make, but I'm still sort of stuck in like the 16-bit uh, like Super Nintendo era as far as all the games I make, where it's like, ah, 2D graphics are, are fine. But there are some like 3D things that I want to work on. Uh, Kotlin is a language that I think has a lot of promise, and I want to learn that so that I can uh, write Android applications, which is something I picked up years ago, but then I didn't keep up with it. But like that could be amazing. And then a, a lot of people just sort of assume because I wrote this pipe popular programming book that I know everything about coding. And again, that's a fiction that I will encourage uh, in, in everybody. <laughs> but the truth right. is, like, there's there's still like a lot of things I don't know. Um, I haven't really touched on uh, many machine learning or deep learning or data science topics at all. Um, like, I, I still haven't gone past the, the Hello World examples in Pandas and a lot of things like that. So that's on the list as well. Most of my ideas are usually sort of software related even the ones that that aren't like i i want to learn uh video editing and and you know those sort of like film basic filmmaking techniques but again that's mostly just so that i can create programming tutorials on youtube and and online classes and things like that what tools do you have in mind for that i i have no idea at all like like adobe premiere seems to be the main thing that people use but that is also expensive so i'd like to learn like yeah. the the free software stuff for that and uh like blender and 3d modeling uh and 3d printing is something else there's a great tool from da vinci that yeah called resolve yeah i've heard of that and it's free as long as you're not doing 4k and I think for most tutorials, <laughs> 1080p is probably okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think for like, you know, at least assembling stuff and putting things together and, right. I, you know, I mean, I, it's totally like one of those teaser kind of things like, you know. Yeah. Like, and, for, and for 4K, that's sort of, you know, you're making TV shows and movies at that point, probably. Yeah, it's a whole other level. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so they're, they're trying to, the strategy that Adobe used, which is like, hey, let's make Photoshop sort of the industry standard by uh they never gave away photoshop for free but it was also really easy to pirate um so everybody learned photoshop <laughs> you know as as opposed to like um uh gimp the like the linux free so uh, software alternative yeah but yeah so video editing and and 3d modeling and 3d printing uh and you know i've i've yet to actually like sit down with like circuit python or anything and make a blinking led thing um like getting involved in hardware seems like it would be fun too but you know at the same time i have like tons of book projects and and software projects and other things that i'm that i'm also working on so you mentioned this one other project when you were talking to uh nina on python t and again this is just one of these one off things you're like oh this would be kind of a fun idea but it was about there's so many virtual conferences this year, right? Because of right. you know everything that's going on, and and I thought it was a, a neat idea. I found a lot of guests um, by looking through the PyCon listings and, and watching a lot of the videos, and uh, it's been really useful uh, a way to kind of gather that. But you were kind of talking about like sort of creating a, a pseudo curriculum, um, and I thought that was a really great idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of goes back to when I was uh, working on an earlier version of Beyond the Basic Stuff with Python. I wanted to go have a chapter on like packaging and, and PyPI and, and PIP and all of that. And uh, I didn't really know that much. And Python has had a very, 
varied history uh, when it comes to packaging. And the main way that I learned everything was going through all these old PyCon talks and and learning from that. And so I later wrote up a blog post that's sort of like a Python packaging curriculum where I say, here's all the PyCon talks that I watched. Uh, watch them in this order. And here's like brief summaries of what you learn so you can pay attention to them. And I thought, you know, that like PyCon for years now have been putting up the videos of their talks on the internet for free. Yeah, which is just awesome. Yeah, it's it's so amazing. And one way that like PyCon and the Python community is is so different from from everything else. Like PyCon was actually one of the first uh, tech conferences that I ever went to. And I thought, you know, because I had never really gone to conferences before. And, and so I thought like, oh, I should start going to conferences. And then I would go to other ones and I would realize that they're mostly just ways for vendors to sell you things um, or like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to spend a thousand dollars for a ticket because they assume that the corporation that you work for is sending is going to pay for it. Uh, whereas PyCon is is very much centered on actual people and and meeting folks and exchanging ideas and making information freely available. So the the idea that I was talking with uh, Nina about was, I, I call it PyCon University, but I'm not going to call it that uh, in the final thing. But just finding a bunch of talks uh, that, again, they're, they're free online. You can watch them whenever you want, but most people won't because it's sort of, you know, sitting down for a half hour talk or something. You do it. It's hard to know what you should watch, but there's a lot that still there's a lot of useful information there. So I thought, what if I sort of sat down, watched these, came up with like a little like quiz or a bunch of questions and uh, for each one that you could then like answer at the end and sort of create like a, a mini curriculum yeah. for like beginners and intermediates to like, oh, here's talks. And at the end, you'll learn about all these different things like Python packaging or whatever. And then, you know, I could give the questions ahead of time so that you sort of understand what you should be listening for so that you can like answer these questions. Yeah, my, my part of this is uh, just really coming up with like the questions and answers based on the talks. But, you know, it's it's great that all this information is out there. Like, I don't want to write a book that just duplicates the efforts that other people have already made. So so I thought like, well, okay, well, how can we get people to watch these old PyCon talks? Because, you know, like like Ned Batchelder's talk is is from four or five years ago, but it's still incredibly useful information. Yeah. You know, there's there's lots of great content out there. How can we like promote this? Uh, and so I thought like, well, what if I came up with like, sort of an online course where I don't have to actually create the content. I just sort of do a brief intro, tell people what to look for, and then you watch the video. And then at the end, you can like answer the quiz questions, not for a grade, but just to see how much you picked up. And you can always go back and, and watch things and, you know, truly learn from something instead of just passively watching yeah. things. It's a cool idea. I I just the Just the work involved in creating a structure of like, curriculum wise like this is the order you should go in it would be fantastic and it's definitely something that i've been wanting to go back and do and i had um one of my i don't know it's like third guest or whatever was brett slatkin and his talk um mm-hmm. about like refactoring and and some of this other kind of early code stuff was like just so well structured yeah yeah his book effective python is really great oh yeah it's fantastic great advice book yeah yeah well hey thanks so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I want to thank Alice Weigart for being on the show this week. 
And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.